Hello everyone, I welcome you again to PV Bible Alive. This is Bruce Hayes, your host, and I'm the pastor of Parkview Baptist Church in Wichita, Kansas. Our website is pvbiblealive.com where you can find other messages that have been posted of this podcast. So make sure and go back and pick up on any of these that you may not have heard. In particular today, we are looking at Acts chapter 18 and verses 1 through 17, the last half of a sermon that I did before. So if you want to find the first half of that, you need to go there to pvbiblealive.com to podcast and you will find Acts 18, 1 through 17, and it's part 1. Well, the title for the message today is Gifts from the God of Encouragement. Gifts from the God of Encouragement. We're reading verses 1 through 17, and it says, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth. He found a certain Jew named Aquila, a man of Pontus by race who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. He came to them, and because he practiced the same trade, he lived with them and worked, for by trade they were tent makers. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. When they opposed him and blasphemed, He shook out his clothing and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. He departed there and went into the house of a certain man named Justus, one who worshipped God, whose house was near to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his house. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. The Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Don't be afraid, but speak and don't be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people in this city. So he lived there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If indeed it were a matter of wrong or of wicked crime, you Jews, it would be reasonable that I would bear with you. But if they are questions about words and names and your own law, look to yourselves, for I don't want to be judge of these matters. So he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. Gallio didn't care about any of these things. All right. I make note of the reason for the title of this message. The title of this message is Gifts from the God of Encouragement. The reason I chose that title 
was because as you read the passage of Scripture, we get the sense that Paul at this point in his ministry and his missionary work is discouraged as he enters this new town of Corinth. You say, well, what makes me believe that he's discouraged? Well, number one, he's alone again. We know that Timothy and Silas were gone away from him. He had sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to encourage them. He'd sent Silas to Philippi, so he's by himself. Number two, he writes about that. He mentioned that before, that when he writes his letter... Uh, to the church in Corinth later on he says in 1 Corinthians 2 3 when I came to you brothers I didn't come with excellence of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God I was with you in weakness in fear and in much trembling we also know that he gives us a clue about his demeanor when he writes from Corinth to the church in Thessalonica and says in 2 Thessalonians 3, he gives them advice not to be weary in well-doing. And that would seem to be a temptation on his part as well, that he not be weary in well-doing. But probably the most significant evidence that he was discouraged at this point in his ministry is what we just read in verses 9 and 10 of Acts 18. It says that the Lord came to Paul and in the night he gave him a vision and in the vision he said, don't be afraid but speak and don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Typically speaking, anytime we go to Scripture and find God saying to somebody, don't be afraid, it's because they are afraid. And so, as we come to this particular point in, in the, the ministry at Corinth, we find Paul discouraged and, and fearful. And so this message is entitled, Gifts from the God of Encouragement. Gifts from the God of Encouragement. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been discouraged. Well, I, I'd have to say you probably have been. Um... We've, we've all had those times of discouragement. Um, in fact, I mentioned before that I can look over my church congregation and tell you I could literally list off the reasons why people would be discouraged at one time or another. It can be their kids kids didn't grow up the way they wanted them to they they've departed from the faith could be their health we've we've all got I mean some people have got heart issues and cancer and um, other 
bodily aches and pains and and just approaching that age whenever you know that you're, you're coming to the end of, of life um, it can be as I said pain there's some people that are dealing with chronic pain there are some individuals in my church that I know have employment issues they, they can't find a job they, they, they don't make enough money at their job to sustain them there can be stressful relationships that an individual's going through um, or even just a simple worry over the future you see the things happening in our country and and you think where are we going and and what's going to happen to our country and, and our city and our land and our our own family here or even our church sin can be something that dampens the spirit destroys the joy in the heart of a believer when we succumb to sin and so all of those things are possible reasons for discouragement and Paul had other reasons for discouragement he was coming to a city a new place to share the gospel and that place seemed to be entirely given over to sin and sexual immorality and he had just come from some places that just seemed to be entirely indifferent to the gospel so he had some discouragement going on well that's why I entitled this passage of scripture gifts from the God of encouragement because God offers these same kinds of gifts to each and every believer in order to bring them to a point of encouragement whatever place they find themselves in their lives and we listed them off for you last time the gifts that he offered to Paul he offers to us as well they are work a work to do, friends, converts, separation, words, and quiet. Quiet. Well, we're going to pick up with this sermon, this message, and we covered a couple of those points last time. I'm going to summarize those quickly and then pick up with the remainder for our message today. So let's first off talk about the gift of work that God gave to Paul to bring him out of his despondency. It says, as he arrived in Corinth, verse 4, um, well, before verse 4, I'm going to tell you that he gave him both a spiritual and a physical work to do. But verse 4 is the spiritual work. It says, He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded Jews and Greeks. What that indicates is that even though he may have looked around at the spiritual condition of this city of Corinth, and wondered whether or not he was going to have any impact whatsoever on that city. He got to work. 
and decided, okay, I've got I've got a work to do, so I need to get about doing it. So he started going to the synagogue just as he always had before. Then God also gave him a physical work to do. When he arrived in Corinth, we get the impression that he needed to go to work to support himself. He would get a, an offering from Silas brought from Philippi a little bit later on, but immediately as soon as he gets there, he runs into a couple people, Achilla and Priscilla, and they are tent makers, leather workers, and he actually gets to move into their home and he gets to work supporting himself doing something physical and what we pointed out last time was that sometimes the best thing that you can do in a time of discouragement is to get about a work some kind of work that needs to be done it can be a spiritual work of uh, the people that God has placed in your life that you need to invest yourself in. It may be a physical work, anything from baking cookies to doing yard work to even getting yourself a little job if that's necessary in order to get your mind back into the day-to-day -day and to get it off of things of discouragement and so that's a gift that God gives now he gives a second gift as well and that is the gift of friends in this particular passage of scripture God gave Paul two different kinds of friends he gave them him new friends and old friends the new friends are listed as Achilla and Priscilla. He meets this couple, possibly meeting them at the synagogue, and turns out they are they are tent makers, leather workers, just like he is. They also have in common that they are Christians. They are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They also have in common that they have all been kicked out of places tells us in this passage that Priscilla and Aquila had been kicked out of Rome by the edict from Claudius when Claudius declared that all Jews had to be removed from Rome and we talked about that last time but Paul had been kicked out of a couple of towns himself because of his preaching of Jesus Christ and and the unrest that followed from that preaching. And I think as well they were, they both had missionary spirits about them. Paul, of course, was on missionary journeys to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Achilla and Priscilla, we know later on, open up their home to be the place for a church and they help Paul in his missionary enterprise. So they both have 
they have those things in common. God gave him some wonderful new friends. But we also know that God gave them some old friends. It tells us in the passage of Scripture that after Paul arrived, arriving there alone in the city of Corinth, that then Silas and Timothy come back from the errand that he sent them on. It says, when Silas and Timothy, verse 5, were come from Macedonia. Now, that seems to be a very short phrase and doesn't indicate a lot of meaning to us necessarily. But we know that Silas came from Philippi and that they had taken up a love offering for Paul so that he could dedicate himself to preaching. And Philippi was also a healthy Christian church. Even after all of the trouble they went through, uh, Paul being thrown in prison, Paul and Silas and the Philippian jailer story and Lydia and the, the girl possessed of demons and all that stuff. But that church was healthy and it was going and and the indication that it was going well was they were willing to take up an offering to help Paul out in continuing to take the gospel. That had to be an, be an encouragement for Paul. In addition, Timothy comes back. Timothy has been to Thessalonica to check on that church. And you remember in Thessalonica that Paul had had success for about three Sabbath days preaching the gospel. And then some uh, oppo opposing Jews wanting to get him out of town got a riot together and forced him out of Thessalonica. He goes down to Berea. And when he's in Berea, the, the, the Jews from Thessalonica don't like the fact that he's in the next town doing the same thing. So they send some people down there to cause trouble. So Paul is forced out again. Paul left some believers in Thessalonica, but he, he was wondering if they're okay. Because there's a lot of unrest and turmoil and violence going on in that city. Well, Timothy comes back. And he gives a good report of what's happening in Thessalonica. And at that point, Paul sits down and writes the first letter to the Thessalonians in response. And you can read that letter and find how encouraged he was when he got this good news from Timothy. And so God gave Paul really four solid good friends in order to encourage him. And God gives those same kind of gifts to us. We find friends in our church groups, Christian friends who support us, who lift us up, come alongside of us. I think that's why it's so important that even in these days, as it says in the book of Hebrews, that we not forsake the gathering of ourselves together. Because 
part of the way that God enriches our lives, part of the way that God grows us, part of the way that God takes care of our needs is through Christian brothers and sisters in Christ. And by not being a part of the church, we are cutting off one line of blessing that God intends for us to have. So, those are two gifts. Now, we come to a third gift, and that is the gift of converts. Then we'll get to separation, words, and quiet. Now, the gift of converts. The next gift of encouragement that Paul is given is converts. It is the fruit of of his spiritual labor the fruit of his spiritual labor it says in verse 4 he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded Jews and Greeks then you go down to verse 8 and it says Crispus the ruler of the synagogue believed in the Lord with all his house many of the Corinthians when they heard believed were baptized. So automatically we find that there are those who come to faith. He, verse 4, he's persuaded Jews and Greeks. It tells us a specific man and its name, his name is Crispus and he's the ruler of the synagogue and his entire household came to faith. And then it says many others of the Corinthians also believed and were baptized. Paul had people respond positively to the message. I mean, you can hardly ask for more encouragement than that when you are taking the gospel out into the world. You know, life itself can be discouraging. Um, I think about my attempts to educate in my secular employment as a math teacher, 8th grade math teacher, and you try to get kids to learn something. And, and even more than that, it's just a matter of their understanding the importance of learning something. And it can be disheartening because the restrictions that uh, I'm under, if, if I think about, for example, trying to be a spiritual witness at my school to be the the witness to Christ that I'm called to be in addition to teaching just common math it can be disheartening because there's only so many things I can do in that setting but really nothing encourages my heart more than when I get to have a spiritual conversation with somebody at school. The particular week that I preached this sermon, I had three of those opportunities. Two of them were with fellow teachers, and one was with a student whom I've, I've never even seen the kid. The conversations with teachers happened because I ended up alone on two occasions with uh, one teacher or another, and the conversation moved to spiritual things. 
Now, it wasn't really anything dramatic. Nobody fell down before me saying, what must I do to be saved? But what it did for me, the very fact that I was able to have these spiritual conversations, was it offered a glimmer of hope that there is a mission field before me at my school. So I had these two teachers. The other happened with a student. And this is how it started. This is one of my students in an online class. As I said, I'd never even met him. And the only picture I have of him is the one that's on the roll in, in the roll book. And it's an old picture. The, the kids are not required to put their faces up in the meeting that we have online. So a lot of them will just choose some random picture that they like, uh, some Yu-Gi-Oh or, or, or some other kind of picture that, that they enjoy, and they'll use that as their profile picture. So I've never even seen him. But this week, he sent me this email. And by the way, there are no, there's no punctuation here. But he said, hey, Mr. Hayes, I just wanted to say, since we aren't going to be able to talk and do the stuff we used to because I'm going to high school, I just wanted to say you are one of the best teachers on the planet. You're super funny, and you have some of the corniest jokes ever. You still are the one of the best teachers. And I just want to say no weird stuff, but I love you as a teacher. You are one of my best friends, and my heart hurts because I know that I won't be able to speak to you like that anymore. And... And I don't even know what this says. If I read it literally, what he said, but lay, mean, hey, I had three years, so yeah, I'll be going to high school, so yeah, bye, mister. I mean, that was an overwhelmingly encouraging note. Well, I ended up writing back to him, saying thank you for the encouraging words, and... Um, I told him I would pray for him while he was in high school, and that was kind of the end of the end of the conversation. But it it was encouraging to see that you've made some impact on somebody, and I know that as encouraging as that was to me, it, it had to be very encouraging to the heart of Paul that there were actually people who were coming to faith. Um, even though, as he would write to the Corinthians later on, even though we are pressed on every side, we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we don't despair. We are pursued, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed, because we always carry in the body the putting to death of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. If you go down to verse 15 of chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, he concludes that thought by saying, For all things are for your sakes, that the grace being multiplied through the many may cause a thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. What he's saying is that we do all this stuff for you. We bring the gospel for you. 
And the hope is that the grace that we're preaching will be multiplied through the many. And in the end, it will result in a great deal of thanksgiving that will abound to the glory of God. In other words, God calls us to a mission. We go out on that mission as people come to faith. It, it all ends up in lifting up our spirits to the point where we can just offer praise and thanksgiving to God. And in that way, God encourages us and it results in glory being brought to God himself. Well, that's the gift of converts. Um, now let's move on. We're going to look at the gift of separation. Separation. Verse 5 says this, But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. When they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook out his clothing and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads, I am clean. From now on I go to the Gentiles. Then it says he departed from there, went into the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Now, I was trying to think of a word for this point. Separation was the only one I could come up with. I was going to call it righteous indignation or maybe righteous separation. But this is what I mean by that. Sometimes our discouragement comes, just to be truthful, our discouragement can come because we are wasting our energy on defiant people. Okay? We are wringing our hands and scurrying around trying to appease or even save people who refuse God. I mean, isn't that true? You can spend years of your life in worry and effort over someone you love. You can talk to and argue with a co-worker. They can make your life miserable. You can have family members who bring you misery, and you can keep bending over backwards in hopes that they will change. Now, that's all a part of the normal course of life. It is our mission, our ministry, to try and reach people, even people who are obstinate. And I'm not saying they are beyond the reach of Christ. In fact, in my experience, sometimes someone who is angry and hostile to the gospel is more likely to be reached than someone who is indifferent to it. You'd almost rather see someone say, uh, I hate God, than to say, I don't care. Because in the end, I don't care just leads to a passive indifference to the gospel. Hostility leads to somebody having to make some decision at some point. Well, what happens in our lives very often one day with those people that are just causing us grief 
while we try to live Christ and to proclaim Christ before them. One day, not through anything that I do or you do, they decide they've had enough of you and they cut the ties. They become hostile towards you and cut those ties. I mean, let's just be frank. Marriages can go like that. That's why Paul advised wives to live for Christ in front of their unbelieving husbands in hopes that they would come to faith. But if that the husband decides that he is done, if they depart, let them depart, then you are free. What Paul was saying to these wives is, you do your best and you wait on their decision to walk away from you. And I kind of think there are moments like this in many of our lives where people that we are trying to love and trying to reach for the kingdom of Christ, when they just decide, I'm, I'm done with you. There were moments like that in practically every town that Paul went to. The moment when he presented Christ for the umpteenth time to certain Jewish people and they rejected and threw it back in his face. Now, here it said, as I said, it said it was the Jews. Now, this is what it said they did. They opposed him and blasphemed. Well, what does it mean that they blasphemed? Well, it simply means they spoke against Christ. Blasphemy against Christ can come in many forms. When Jesus was alive, some claimed that his miracle power came from Satan. Well, that's speaking against Christ. That's blasphemy. Uh, on another occasion, when he was on the cross, they spoke against him, saying, Let him come down from the cross if he is the Son of God. So, this is what happened on this particular occasion. Their venom turns from Paul to the Christ whom he preaches. They start saying things against Christ. It's not as much like before. It's not as much as them saying, oh, you're just a seed picker, like it's, they said to him in Athens. Um, it's not like another occasion when one of the rulers said to Paul, you're beside yourself. Much learning has driven you nuts. It's, it's, it's beyond their personal insult of Paul. Now they are angrily blaspheming, insulting Christ. Now we don't know particularly what they said, but we can imagine it. And that was the point at which Paul couldn't stand it anymore because their blasphemous words openly displayed the blackness of their hearts. They, he could see that they would not hear, they would not believe, they were filled with hate. So, it literally tells us Paul shakes out the dust from his cloak and says, Your blood be on your own heads. In other words, I'm done with you. That phrase, your blood be on your own heads, was used in the conversation way back in the Old Testament with Rahab before the Battle of Jericho. You remember, if you remember that story, 
she asked for protection from the war and the invasion of Israel. She lived in Jericho. Two spies had come to her, and she had hid them from those who were looking for them, and then asked for their protection when the invasion came. Well, they told her to hang this red garment in the window as a sign that the house was to be unharmed. So that would be an indication. Anybody invading Jericho could look up to that house and see this red thing hanging there, and that was their indication. You don't touch anybody in that house. We leave those alone. But they said to her this, You'd better instruct your family to stay in the house because if they are caught out of the house during the invasion, they will be killed and their blood will be on their own heads. In other words, the invaders wouldn't be guilty of breaking the covenant or the agreement to protect her and her family. The person who dies would be guilty because they didn't heed the warning that they were given. That's what Paul is saying to these Jewish people. I've given you fair warning. I'm done with you. Now I'll take my message to the Gentiles. Now, I say all that to get to the point. There is a blessing of encouragement that comes from God, a blessing, a gift of separation. It, it can be a gift to finally come to this resolution. Even if it's a resolution where they say, I'm done, and they separate themselves from you, that can be a burden off of your shoulders. You might ask, well, is it right to cut people off like that? Well, I think there are occasions when it is right. Now, that doesn't mean that they are outside of the reach of grace. Any of these Jews could still have chosen to believe and be forgiven. In fact, look at where it said that Paul went. Verse 7. After he said this to the Jews, he left the synagogue, and it says he departed there, went into the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. <laughs> Think of that. He, he like storms out of the synagogue. It's like Paul said, I'm done with you people. He storms out of the synagogue and then went right next door to the house of justice. He told them he was done, but in an essence, it was like his being right there was an indication that his door was still open for them to come to him. You know, sometimes our hearts are encouraged by that kind of separation. We can gain a certain degree of peace in our hearts when everything is finally laid on the table and somebody rejects Christ and you and walks out of your life. Because now you know that they are in God's hands. There's little else that you can do. You can continue to pray. 
You can maintain some token of communication that lets them know that the door is open on your end. But in a sense, now you are free to spend your efforts on fruitful relationships. Does that mean there's no hope for these people in your life or for this group of Jews in this story? Well, on the contrary, look at the next verse. It says he goes to the house next door, next door to the synagogue. And then verse 8 says this, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his house. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. Who believed? Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue. He was the man in charge of the synagogue and its upkeep and, and its services. And he came to faith after Paul had that final confrontation in the synagogue. That is remarkable because it was after Paul had cut them off and said, I'm done with you guys, that God still reached into the heart of the very man who was in charge of that synagogue, and he came to faith. So, there's encouragement. There can be encouragement in separation. Now, I want to show you another one. This is our fifth point. God encouraged and gives the gift of encouragement, the gift of words. More specifically, for Paul, it was a personal word from God. A personal word from God. Look at verse 9. The Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Don't be afraid, but speak and don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people in this city. This, this is remarkable. Paul, God spoke personally to Paul here. Now, God had spoken personally to Paul on a number of occasions throughout the New Testament. But I think this would have been one of those that was the greatest encouragement of all. A personal word of encouragement from God. I mean, can you imagine getting a personal word of encouragement from God himself? You might say, boy, I wouldn't be so discouraged if God would just kind of lean down and let me know he's there, that he's in control. Can you imagine if God did that for you? Well, I hope you can, because you know what? He did. He gave you many words of encouragement right here in the Bible. And we need those, don't we? Well, I want to just give you a, a couple right now. This is what I found in Scripture. Isaiah 40, verse 31 says... But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. I like this one as well. Deuteronomy 31 verse 8. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. 
do not be discouraged. Lots of words of encouragement in Scripture. Psalm 121, verse 1. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. You say, yeah, but why can't I have a personal word of encouragement like Paul? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe God will give you one at some point in your life. I, I can't say that. But as I think about Paul, I think of a man on whom God put a responsibility and burden far greater than any that I've ever borne. I mean, Paul is responsible for the writing of 13 of the books of the New Testament. The missionary work of Paul took the gospel uh, out into the world into new places that it had never been before and it was the foundation for the gospels being spread all over the world. Paul's suffering for the gospel ranks right up there second only to Christ himself. And so I think when I consider that God personally encouraged Paul, before I say, boy, I wish God would personally encourage me, I have to think, be careful what you ask for. Because it says in Scripture, to whom much is given, much will be required. But God encouraged him. So listen to what God told Paul. Verse 9, the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Don't be afraid, but speak and don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people in this city. He said, Don't stop. Don't give up. Don't be afraid. Don't be silent. And here he gives him three reasons not to be silent, not to give up, not to be discouraged. First off, I am with you. I am with you. The, the Greek literally translated would be, I myself am with you personally. It's not just some general promise of God's universal presence in the world. It is God telling Paul, don't give up. I'm right by your side like what it says in Isaiah 41.10 Don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. Yes, I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. That's like literally God saying I'm right here. My, my arm, my hand is holding you up whenever you are bent over in despair and weakness you know what else God said to you Matthew 28 behold I am with you always even to the end of the age so what else did he say to Paul first off I am with you number two no man will set on you to hurt you you know what he was telling Paul these people 
can't hurt you. These people can't hurt you. Now, did you know that he says the same thing to everyone who belongs to God? These people can't hurt you. Look at Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon that is formed against you will prevail, and you will condemn every tongue that rises against you in judgment. No weapon formed against you will prevail. You say, but hold on. They did end up hurting Paul. I mean, it may not have been in Corinth, but it was in other places. He was beaten, imprisoned. Eventually, Paul was put to death. Well, let me say this. This is not a promise to Paul or to us that we are going to be invincible. It's a promise that even though there will be weapons that the enemy uses to try and cut us down, those enemies have no authority to take our lives or harm us outside of God's will for our lives. Let me say that again. It's a promise that the enemies of God have no authority to take our lives or harm us outside of God's will for our lives. Jesus said something similar to Pilate. He said, you have no authority at all, and what he meant was to crucify him, except what was given you from above. And that's what Paul, God was saying to Paul. Paul, don't worry about these enemies. Don't think that I'm not watching over you, that something will happen that will catch me by surprise. Nobody is going to touch you outside of my will. And the third encouragement to Paul was, I have many people in this city. First off, I'm with you. Number two, nobody's going to hurt you. Number three, I have many people in this city. Essentially, he was saying to Paul, you, you might think that this city is hopeless. You may see its moral bankruptcy. And we talked about that before. The city of Corinth was overrun with prostitution. The temple to Aphrodite unloaded 1,000 temple priestesses each night out into the streets of the city where they plied their trade supposedly to bring people to communion with Aphrodite. But the whole place was, was overrun with prostitution. There were sailors and tradespeople coming and going throughout the place. And it would almost seem to be a place that was beyond the, the grace of God, beyond hope. But Paul was saying to him, Listen, you may think this city is hopeless, you may see its moral bankruptcy, and that can be a crush to your spirit. But I have many people in this city. What does that mean? It means that God knows those who will believe. Scripture tells us that those who are Christians were chosen before the foundation of the world. 
and that God could look over Corinth and see exactly who in that city would believe. And he's encouraging Paul by telling him, listen, Paul, there will be much fruit here. There will be a church here. And we know that there was because Paul wrote two letters to that church later, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And so God himself stepped in and gave Paul a gift of encouragement by his word. That is the gift of encouragement that God offers us as well, his word. Sometimes it just takes some effort on our part to search it out and find his encouragement. Now, what is the sixth gift of encouragement that God gave to Paul? It was quiet. Quiet. Look at verse 7. He departed there and went into the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his house. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. The Lord said to Paul, Don't be afraid, but speak and don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people in the city. And look at verse 11. He lived there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Paul was able to stay in Corinth a year and six months. That's wonderful. That's encouraging, especially when you consider where Paul has been. He was driven out of Thessalonica after just three Sabbaths. He was driven out of Berea after a very short time. There were, there were towns all back through his missionary journeys that, that he had to leave because of opposition. And so he left these little groups of believers there and went on to the next city. He had to leave Athens, it seems, just because of indifference. There wasn't even enough people to continue with that work. But when he gets to Corinth, he ends up staying there a year and six months. I mean, that's wonderful. It had to have been so great to not be driven out of town on a rail or be imprisoned or stoned. For in a year and a half, he gets to teach and minister to new believers, to see new converts, to baptize people. For a year and a half, Paul's life almost took on a feel of the ordinary and the peaceful. He gave him the gift of quiet. God gives us those times too, doesn't he? You know, we, we never know how long they're going to last. We have those times of refreshing. You know, I hope our church is a place of refreshing for those who come uh, into our assembly. Our church has had some tumultuous times in the past. But God has also given us times of peace. And so, when God gives you those times of peace... Enjoy it while you have it. 
because God gives it to you as a time to refresh you, to strengthen you. And we pray that at our church that we can share that time of peace with those who may not have peace at that particular moment in their lives. We gather on Sunday, and though I may be going through a very good time in my life, I know there are others who are not. And so the church becomes that place of peace, that haven, that island of solitude and quiet for at least this one or few hours in a week. Well, Paul had it for a season, but then comes verse 12. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. You say, uh-oh, here we go. They're going to drive him out of town. Well, who is Gallio? We... We can read a bit about him. He is an actual historic figure that there's some, some um, facts about. He was a relatively famous man. He was the elder brother of the famous philosopher Seneca. Seneca was a tutor to Nero when he was a child. Gallio was also the uncle of a famous poet named Lucan, if I'm pronouncing that right. So he came from a famous and connected family. Well, he was a proconsul or governor in Corinth by the authority of the Roman emperor. He was sort of like Pilate uh, in the area of um, Judea. So Gallio was this man, and he seems to had, have had a reputation as being a, a kind man, a fair man, Seneca, um, his brother said about Gallio that he was a very kind man. He said, No man is as sweet to one as Gallio is to everyone. So, this is what happens. Um, the Jews, with one accord, it says, rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. What's going on here? Well, they can't seem to get rid of Paul by forcing him out of synagogue services because he just went next door and began having church services there. They can't get him out of town and people are coming to faith. His ministry is effective. People are being persuaded. So they want him gone. They don't want him preaching Jesus Christ. So they go a second route, which is what they've always done, is now we're going to take it to the legal authorities, the Roman government. So this is what they're hoping. They're hoping that Rome will do the work for them that they can't accomplish on their own. They couldn't get Paul to shut up. He was gaining converts. And they didn't have the authority to uh, just kill him they could have if they were back in Israel. They probably could have gotten away with that. So instead, what they hope is that they can bring him into a Roman court and that the Roman court's decision against Paul, is what they're hoping, will set a precedent which can then be used to shut Paul up across the entire Roman Empire. 
So if they can get a judge, and it's sort of like our system of government, you can go to a judge, you can get one judge to make a decision, at least a high court judge. A lot of other judges will honor the precedent of that other judge. They will say, you know, I'm not going to step on his authority. And, and it was just kind of the same circumstance in Rome. If you got one judge to make a decision against someone, then it would be more difficult to overturn it. Because you never know if even the higher judge might not even hear the case. So that's what their hope is. They want to shut Paul up, not only in Corinth, but also across the entire Roman Empire. And if they had been successful, really this would have changed Paul's work for the next 10 or so years. It, it might have led him to his death more quickly than it actually happened. Because if he continued to preach against the mandate of this court, he would have been defying Rome itself. And it could have led to his sooner execution. But that wasn't in God's timing. You remember how God encouraged Paul with a personal word? He said, don't be afraid, but speak. Do not keep silent. I am with you. No one will attack you or hurt you, for I have many people in the city. No one will attack you or hurt you. God was in essence saying to Paul, I am giving you a time of peace. Well, look what happened. Verse 12, it says, When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose against Paul, brought him before the judgment seat, and they said, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. So this is what they're accusing Paul of. Roman law said that any religion practiced in Rome had to be approved by Rome. They were called either religio licita, or religio illicita. Licita means permitted religions. The Jewish faith, for example, was a permitted faith under Roman law. Well, then along comes Jesus and along comes Christianity. At first, Rome viewed Christianity as just another sect of Judaism. Sort of like, you know, you have Pharisees and Sadducees and now we got these Christians. But the Jews in Corinth were taking Paul to a Roman court, and they want Gallio to move Christianity from the religio licita column to the religio illicita, or the non-permitted religions column. If they could do that, then any town in the entire Roman Empire that Paul went to, they could take him to court, show the judge that Paul was preaching a religion that Rome did not approve. That would be the end of the case. But I want, you to I want to show you the power of our encouraging God. Look at verse 14. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, he was about to defend himself, he was about to preach the gospel again. We don't know what he would have said because Gallio butted in, didn't say anything. Paul didn't say anything. Gallio said to the Jews, If indeed it were a matter of wrong or of wicked crimes, you Jews, it would be reasonable that I would bear with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, 
Look to it yourselves, for I don't want to be a judge of these matters. Now, look at what happened. Galileo looked at the evidence. He looked at the evidence. Think of that as a judge. He was likely very familiar with Judaism. And he had, at this point, a year and a half to hear about Christianity. And so all he could see was that Christianity was just a sect of Judaism. All, for all he saw, they both believed the scriptures. They both believed in a coming Messiah. They just disagreed about who that coming Messiah was. So he's saying... This is you guys' theological issue. I'm not getting into this. This has nothing to do with Roman law. And he left Christianity as a permitted religion. <laughs> Remarkable. God worked it out. Paul didn't even have to make a defense before this Roman authority. Then, apparently these uh, Jews that came to the court didn't like his decision and they kept on arguing and so in verse 16 it says he drove them from the judgment seat in other words they kept on trying to convince him that the, they were not that these Christians were not a part of Judaism uh, trying to make arguments on that behalf and he said I'm done I've already, I've already pounded the gavel we're, we're, we're through and because they wouldn't leave he said alright bailiff get them out of here and they were driven from the judgment seat then look at verse 17 then all the Greeks seized Sosthenes the ruler of the synagogue they've got a new ruler of the synagogue now the first one converted to Christianity now they got a new ruler of the synagogue and they beat him before the judgment seat and it says Gallio didn't care about any of these things. What does that mean? Well, somebody beat up the ruler of the synagogue. Now, we don't know who that was. Um, we There's some that, that think it was the Jews. Uh, there's others that, that think that the unbelieving Gentiles... We're just taking out their anti-Semitic um, aggression out on these Jews. Some the, the ones that think it was the, the part of the Jews that did it, along with maybe some uh, Greeks who had come partway into Judaism. Some some people think that because they were beating him up because he did such a bad job of getting this. Paul driven out of town and with this court case doesn't matter who did it but what it seems is that the judgment really didn't go the way that these Jews wanted it to and then do you know what verse 18 says so Paul still remained a good while Paul still remained a good while I think this time in Corinth was a great time of encouragement for Paul. God surrounded him in his time of distress with friends, with new converts, gave him a work to do, 
resolve, gave him quiet. It's remarkable all that was accomplished in Corinth. It was in Corinth that Paul wrote first and second Thessalonians and later the book of Romans. And of course, we also have Paul writing back to the church in Corinth. We have two letters in the New Testament, first and second Corinthians, that were his letters back to that church. So five letters that were birthed in the city of Corinth. Truly was a rich time for him, and really, I think, a time for us as well. well we're going to conclude with that passage of Scripture, and we will pick up with the book of Acts after we get to the book of First and Second Thessalonians. In the progress of uh, the chronology of, of what we're doing at the church, as we go through the book of Acts, then when we come to a place in the book of Acts where a letter was written by Paul or uh, by another apostle, for instance, we read, we studied the book of James earlier. We depart from Acts, go study those letters or letter, and then we will come back to Acts. So now, as I said, it was in Corinth that Paul sat down because of the encouraging word he got from Timothy, having come back from Thessalonica, he wrote First and Second Thessalonians. So we're going to be going to First and Second Thessalonians and after we've completed those returning to Acts. Well, let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you encourage us and you use any number of means to do so. You give us friends. You give us your word. You give us times of quiet. You even sometimes bring relationships to a place of rejection so that somebody can be separated from us and we can have some quiet. We never know what each day is going to bring in this life. But Lord God, we, we love you. We account on you. You know our hearts better than we know them ourselves. And we count on you to do for us what you know that we need. Encourage our hearts. Strengthen us. And we pray this. In Jesus' name, amen.